1: that's a little heavier than I would generally like to do on a Friday but I've had it on my lists for all week so I said I, I may as well I, I may as well do it now because something always gets in the way. Uh, this story drives me crazy <clears throat> because four FBI agents I'm gonna give you the basics first four FBI agents posing as ISIS members, began <clears throat> began chatting online with Humza Mashkur when he was 16 years old. He was arrested on terrorism charges weeks after his 18th birthday. Essentially, and I'll give you the details in a second, these undercover FBI agents helped this autistic teen plan a trip to join ISIS, and then as soon as he turned 18, they arrested him, and I saw that, and the story just came out. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I feel like I just did that story a couple of months ago. Well, sure enough, it was a different story. Same reporter, same publication, The Intercept, but it was a different story. It was from June of last year, where the a different, different young man, but the same story. The FBI groomed, a 16-year-old with brain development issues to become a terrorist. That was the story of Mateo Ventura. That was from June of last year. So uh, you look at all the details of these stories and you look, and unfortunately it looks like this is not an exception. This is what the FBI does. They create crimes to arrest people. Uh, you An know, autistic 16-year-old made extremist posts online which attracted the interest of the FBI, which dedicated four, count them, four undercover agents into grooming him into supporting ISIS. When he turned 18, they arrested him. And unfortunately, the more you look at this, the more you see what a problem this is. Many of the post-9-11 domestic, quote-unquote, domestic terror attacks, the FBI congratulated itself for breaking up, were, in fact, created and directed by the FBI, which targeted vulnerable Muslims to join. That's why, one of the reasons why, anyway, disbelief that FBI does the same thing for right-wing groups requires historical ignorance. We spoke about the Michigan kidnapping case, for instance. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, when he was with The Intercept, reported on so many of these quote-unquote war-on-terror entrapment cases where the FBI would use informants to lure poor or mentally unstable young Muslims to join plots created not by ISIS but by the FBI. In 2015, uh, Greenwald did an article about this, headline, Why Does the FBI Have to Manufacture Its Own Plots If Terrorism and ISIS Are Such Grave Threats? But let's not look at 2015. Let's not look at June. Let's just look at this. Hamza Mashkur had just cleared security at... This is from The Intercept. I'm going to link to this article on my Facebook page. If you want to read it, you are welcome to do so. Um, Hamza Mashkur had just cleared security at Denver International Airport when the FBI showed up. The agents had come to arrest the 18-year-old who's diagnosed with a developmental disability and charge him with a terror-related crime. At the time of the arrest, a relative later said in court, Mashkur was reading Diary of a Wimpy Kid. That's a book written for elementary school children. Mashkur had gone to the airport on December 18th to fly to Dubai and from there to either Syria or Afghanistan as part of his alleged plot to join the Islamic State. The trip had been spurred by over a year. Of online exchanges, starting when Mashcore was 16 years old with four people he believed were members of ISIS. That's according to the uh, Justice Department's criminal complaint. The four were actually undercover FBI agents. As a result of his conversations with the FBI, Mashcore could face a lengthy sentence for attempting to provide material support to a terrorist organization. Again, he wasn't trying to provide material support to a terrorist organization. He was trying to provide material support to a fake terrorist organization created by the FBI. At an initial court hearing, the family member said that Corps, who had turned 18 just a few weeks prior to the arrest, had intellectual difficulties and was diagnosed with autism. Despite acknowledging Mashcore's family support and his young age, the judge ordered that he be detained while awaiting trial. The judge said, it's not lost on this court that Mr. Mashcore is a young man with possible mental illness and the diagnosis of high-functioning autism. It is clear he has a sea of familial support, but based on the evidence, there's no reasonable assurance that the court can simply chalk all this up to the defendant simply being a young man. So law enforcement agents first became aware of Mashcore's online activities in November of 2021. Well, what would you do? If my son was posting something even mildly supportive of Islamic extremism or ISIS, you know what I would hope law enforcement would do? Call me up or knock on my door. Mr. Morano, there are some things your son is involved in on the Internet that you need to be aware of. That's what I would hope. They didn't do that. Instead, um, instead of alerting his family... FBI agents posed as ISIS members and they took this young man that had no friends and they befriended him a year later and they strung him along until he became a legal adult. The defense attorney representing this young man said, and I agree with him, it is appalling that the government never once reached out to his parents even while they were sending undercover agents to befriend him online starting when he was 16 years old. Almost all of the conduct he's alleged to have committed took place when he was a a juvenile. And, you know, more details may emerge on the circumstances of uh, MASHCOR's attempt to join ISIS, but the facts as laid out in the criminal complaint, and you can see all this in this Intercept article I just posted, they're... Hallmarks of terrorism prosecutions based on these FBI sting: A young man with developmental disabilities and no friends already on the police's radar due to mental health episodes and conflict with families is groomed as a minor over a long period by a group of undercover FBI agents, agents that you're paying for. This time that they're spending cultivating all this young man and uh, getting him to want to join ISIS, you're paying for all that time. Mashcore's case follows a pattern of FBI sting operations in which a teenager is arrested shortly after their 18th birthday. As in similar cases, the court documents here suggests that Mashkur was limited in his ability to execute a terrorist plot on his own. Uh, Sahar Aziz, a national security expert and law professor at Rutgers, said this case appears consistent with a common fact pattern seen in tens, if not hundreds, of terrorism-related cases in which the FBI has effectu- effectively manufactured terrorist prosecutions. In this case, it was a 16-year-old kid. Who otherwise would have just sat in his relative's basement posting offensive content in a manner similar to a a Proud Boy. People whom the FBI does not necessarily seem to spend enormous resources trying to entrap. This is the press release. uh, This is the um, law professor saying this, not me. Just so that they can get a high profile press release. So MASHCOR, this young man, first came to the authorities' radar for social media posts around the time of his 16th birthday. And according to the complaint, MASHCOR began posting in support of terrorism in November of 2021, and a platform he used alerted the FBI of suspicious activity. Let's say it's Facebook. Facebook tips off the FBI. July of of 2022, local police are called to MASHCOR's home after he allegedly assaulted a family member during a dispute. Unfortunately, this happens with a lot of teenagers with developmental disabilities. At the time, a relative told police about Mascor's mental illness and autism diagnosis. Two months later, Mascor began communicating with an undercover FBI agent posing as a member of ISIS. The agent eventually introduced Mascor to three other FBI agents who were also impersonating ISIS members. With their encouragement, Mashcorps developed a plan to support the terror group. So along with extensive discussions of what types of services he might provide ISIS, Mashcore regularly confided in the agents about his boredom, his family problems, his hopes of getting married someday, his struggles with mental health, the things that you would tell friends. He constantly referred to being a minor, complaining that being under 18 and subject to the monitoring of family members made it hard for him to travel or send funds. Mashcore's anxieties come through in these chats included in the indictment you can read them for yourself most of which are limited to his sides of the conversation and at one point he told an agent he was considering finding a wife who might be willing to join him in afghanistan but he worried about the possibility of abandoning her if he was killed mask also went back and forth about whether he even wanted to join isis Throughout the chats with these undercover agents, Mashkor expressed support for ISIS and fantasized about fighting with militants abroad. But he also shared doubts about joining the group, as well as concerns that he lacked connections of his own in Afghanistan and Syria. In one message, he worried that, quote, the brothers there might not support me in getting married and may just strap something on me and throw me out into the field. He may, he suggests at one point, instead get a job and finish high school. Well, I would hope that somebody in law enforcement would say, yeah, do that. Finish high school. Get a job. They didn't. They kept pushing him along, encouraging him towards Islamic extremism until they had enough to nail him and until he turned 18. I think this is shameful. But what's shameful about this is that it's not an, F- an isolated incident. The FBI is doing this all the time. I'm not saying this young man shouldn't be prosecuted. He broke the law. Uh, he should be. Absolutely. But the FBI needs to stop doing this. They need a whole new approach to dealing with autistic teenagers that are that are loners and just looking for a friend. And this is very problematic that this is not an exception but the modus operandi for the fbi we'll talk science space and more if you want to comment in uh in you know in on anything you can do so 800-848-9222 uh we're going to talk with dr paul sutter a genuine honest to god astrophysicist and nasa advisor straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight with frank morano other side of midnight with Frank Morano
1: She packed my bags last night
0: pre-flight 0 hour 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite
1: by then this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a show where we seek to explore the mysteries of the universe. I don't think there's anything more mysterious than the universe itself. You look up at the stars and you wonder what's out there, what's beyond what we can see. Well, uh, I have really enjoyed some of the folks that we've gotten to talk to on this subject over the last three years. But I don't know that there's anybody that is more accomplished than my next guest. You could love him, you can hate him, but you can't say he doesn't know what he's talking about. The man is a theoretical cosmologist. He is an award-winning science communicator. He is a NASA advisor, a U.S. cultural ambassador, a globally recognized leader in the intersection of art and science. He's a research professor, an author of multiple books, including the forthcoming book, rescuing science restoring trust in an age of doubt very pleased to welcome to the program gentlemen i've become a a great admirer of dr paul sutter dr sutter
0: thanks for joining me on the radio oh thank you so much for having me and yeah you can hate me i just hope nobody does you and me both. With this audience, it's
1: tough, though. I'm telling you. Uh, Dr. Sutter, what what made you want to be a spaceman? You're involved in space from about every possible perspective, other than, I guess, regularly cruising around in a space shuttle somewhere. What made you want to do this? What inspired your interest in this?
0: Yeah, and the only thing that's stopping me about that is I can't afford a ticket. Yeah, you, you, yet, and me both. On it. you and me yeah.
1: both. Maybe we can uh, shuttle pool or something.
0: Exactly, can we can we take a hot seat? Do we get to share? Like um, i've I've ever since uh, I was a little kid, I've loved space, I loved astronomy, I love science, I love reading, I love learning, um, just all the usual nerdy things. and uh, actually, it wasn't until college, however, the middle of college that I realized that I could actually have a career in this. I went to college initially as a major in computer science because, you know, I'm still a nerd. Um, And I loved all these astronomy topics and and physics and cosmology. And I never realized that that kind of job could be for me, that I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't going to the right schools. I wasn't getting the right education. I didn't have the right background. Um, And then my third year of college, I took an elective astronomy course because I would always held this love for it. And two weeks in, the professor pulled me aside and said, you know, you're actually kind of good at this and it can be a job. Totally broke my brain. I did not realize it was possible. And uh, within a week, I switched majors to physics, and I never looked back. I,
1: I think that's uh, that's terrific. It reminds me of my, uh, m- my realization when I learned that you could actually be on the radio as a job. Very similar. Um, let's get the most important question, maybe the most difficult question, out of the way. And it will allow, I guess, our listeners to judge whether you're a part of the uh, government cover-up or you're a part of the solution here. Are aliens visiting this planet on a regular basis?
0: (laughs) If I am a part of the government cover-up, I wish I could get paid more. Like There seems to be no correlation between being part of the conspiracy and having a lavish lifestyle. Uh, To me, there is no evidence whatsoever that uh, aliens have visited the Earth.
1: So uh, obviously uh, Congress has looked into this. We've seen uh, we've seen these these Tic Tac videos. We've seen uh, Navy pilots chasing some objects that they simply just can't explain. If these objects aren't aliens, serious. this is a serious question. If these objects aren't aliens, what do you think they are?
0: I'm going to say three words and People believe these three words are a capitulation, but actually they're a celebration. the The key, the three words are "I don't know." Hmm. Yeah, you and, and it's both. okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay to say "I don't know." And the other side of that coin is, if you claim that these are images of alien spacecraft, then you are claiming to know what they are. And when you make a statement that say I know what this is, then you must back it up by mm-hmm. evidence, mm-hmm. And you need multiple lines of evidence. The bar for convincing scientists is very much higher than it is for non-scientists. This is how we operate. This is how we work together to to discover the inner workings of nature is by setting a very, very high bar for the standards of evidence. And it's okay in science. In fact, it is encouraged to say... I don't know, because that means there is an opportunity to learn more about the universe. I do not believe that uh, aliens have visited. There has not been any strong evidence to me that has convinced me that aliens have visited us. When I see those videos, when I see the UAP reports and all that, I say, huh, that's kind of weird. I don't know what that is.
1: Obviously on Monday, there was a lot of attention paid to the latest lunar mission there was a lot of optimism about this this was something that was billed as a, kind of a um, a merger of private sector space exploration with government sponsored space exploration doesn't it did not go according to plan needless to say how disappointed are you about what happened with the lunar mission this week the peregrine
0: oh yeah i'm I'm heartbroken and the especially for the the team the people that poured years, uh, not just the money, but the human investment into this. Uh, And it carries every mission into space carries along with it, you know, hope and work and sweat and anticipation for the future. And when things go wrong, it is hard. It is really hard. But that is the ultimate lesson of space, that space is hard operating in space is the most unfamiliar environment we could possibly operate in as humans. And we have to learn a lot if we want to be a successful Mm. interplanetary or interstellar species. We have to do it the hard way because the hard way is the only way. Nature does not allow cheaters in this universe. And so we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have a uh, colossal failures and, and really in science and engineering in this kind of environment, the only time you truly fail is when you don't learn something. And I guarantee the company behind the, the lunar lander, they've already learned a lot about the mistakes they've made. Hopefully they learn a lot more and the second shot makes it all worth it.
1: People are just tuning in. We're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Sutter. He's an astrophysicist, a science educator, and a cultural ambassador. You can check out his website at pmsutter.com. That's S U T T E R com also written a few books which we'll talk about in just a moment. with what happened with the lunar mission this week, Dr. Sutter, do you think that's an indication that the Artemis mission, which was going to be uh, you know put into motion I think next year, is not going
0: to happen anytime soon? <sighs> Artemis is such a tricky subject because it's about much more than the machine. It's about the politics. It's about NASA funding. It's about ensuring jobs programs. It's about uh, maintaining ways of thinking. It's it's about engineering practices that are quickly becoming outdated. I've never been too bullish on the Artemis project. I believe, and this is coming from my own experiences, observing that the delays with the James Webb Space Telescope, which was something like mm. 10 years and $5 billion uh, over budget. Um, the Artemis project, i unfortunately, I think the Artemis project is going to keep going. There's going to be continued funding for it, not enough funding to actually get it going anytime soon. And I think it will be delayed and delayed and delayed. And I actually suspect that there are opportunities here for private companies like SpaceX uh, to simply eclipse it. The, um, you know, you talk about Artemis
1: and the politics behind the technology. I think a lot of folks in our audience remember uh, President Kennedy's uh, speech back in 1962 uh, saying that the resources of the country should be dedicated to returning, a, putting a man on the moon and returning him back before this decade is out. And even though he didn't live to see it, he, that timeline did come to fruition. And it seemed like between 1969 and 1973, we we're going to the moon all the time we haven't been back since 1973 the last three or four presidents have all said let's go back to the moon not one of them has been able to do it why were we able to get to the moon so easily in the late 60s early 70s and it's been 50 years since we've been back why has it taken so long for us to get back to the moon
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a a few reasons. One reason is money. At the height of the Apollo era, NASA was taking something like 4% of the entire federal budget. And almost all the money that NASA was getting was going into the, the, the crude space program, the Apollo program. And so we're spending a significant fraction of all of our wealth as a nation on getting to the moon. Nowadays, NASA is something like 0.5% of the federal budget, and then the money that NASA is getting is spread out amongst many, many different projects, not just crewed missions to the moon. And much of NASA's own budget is not even up to NASA. It's it's directed by Congress mm. line item by line item. They say, okay, NASA, you're going to spend this much money on this program and then this much money on this program and then this much money on this program and this much money on the Artemis project. And then NASA says, well, that's not enough money to achieve the goals of the Artemis project. And then Congress responds with, well, you know, I don't know, too bad. You're smart or something. Figure it out. So one is just raw money, like we are not spending the money that we were 50 or 70 years ago. The other is that we are in a much different culture and society when it comes to acceptable levels of risk in the space program. You know, Apollo 1, three astronauts died in a horrible accident, and we kept going. Mm-hmm. Today, that would be inexcusable. Uh-huh. The entire program would be shut down. We have a much lower tolerance for loss of life in space programs, and even loss of vehicles like of the private companies are able to get away with a lot more losses, a lot more explosions on the launch pad, a lot more mishaps in orbit. The way NASA operates now is much more risk averse than it was 70 years ago because there is Congress sitting over their shoulder. And if imagine if the Artemis test flights from last year, if it blew up on the launch pad, we would not be discussing the future of Artemis at all today. All right. So let's
1: talk about your book, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. Let's talk about the doubt. We've had a lot of doubters call into the show. I've interviewed many of them as guests. We've had uh, people who uh, think that the world is flat and uh, every other variety of doubt to anything. That there's consensus among scientists about from uh, climate change to, you know, um, really just just about everything, anything and everything. I'm not going to uh, leave anybody out by just listing a few things. Why is this an age of doubt? Why is there so much doubt about science these days? Yeah, this is
0: such a complex issue. We do see uh, trust in science is overall very high. The latest Pew Research poll says that uh, 57% of all Americans believe that scientists have the best interest in the nation at heart. And, and that is overall a good thing for our nation to have science and scientists and scientific research. Uh, that's down, though, from a high of almost 80% just a few years ago, right before the pandemic. We are seeing this slow decline in the overall trust that Americans have in science and scientists. And I believe that this erosion of trust has several factors behind it. And one of those factors is the way that scientists themselves approach the public. I believe that scientists are not communicating directly with the public enough. They are not making their research accessible and understandable. I believe that some scientists are getting caught up in, um, in corruption, in fraud. Mm. I believe they're publishing too much and too often and they're, we're getting sloppy and we're not self-correcting and checking ourselves often enough and that some scientists are getting duped uh getting paid off getting bought off getting um getting encouraged to support certain political positions even when it extends beyond the bounds of what their evidence says uh, we have examples of all of this and I believe in science, I believe in the power and vitality of the scientific method to illuminate the world around us and as a tool, as an aid for answering pressing social questions and civilization-wide questions. And yet, this power and vitality and usefulness doesn't get communicated to the public nearly enough. And so the public, many members of the public, will enjoy science, like learning about science, like hearing about new results. But when science touches on something that they personally believe in or have a stake in, then it becomes much harder to navigate, and that's where the erosion of trust uh, begins. And I believe that scientists aren't doing a good enough job in addressing that and in bridging that gap.
1: Talking with Dr. Uh, Paul Sutter. So now that we know the problem, now that we know the factors that have led to this age of doubt, which I think you've uh, illustrated very very comprehensively, how do we restore trust?
0: How do we rescue science? Yeah, I think it's up to the scientists. We can't put it on the public to build the bridges back to science that that were once there. because that's unfair. It's not their fault. Um, it's I believe it's the fault of scientists for not handling their relationship with the public very well. And so uh, this book is a call to scientists, to engineers, to STEM majors, to fans of science to start sharing sharing more, to start communicating more, to start reaching out to the public, not with the expectation of changing minds or convincing people or mocking uh, people who don't believe various aspects of scientific research, it's about talking, it's about sharing, it's about exposing our love and joy and curiosity and wonder. You know, the fundamental human emotions that power scientists every day. It is these emotions that everybody can share in. We can all share in the delight and joy of scientific discovery.
1: You know, I don't want to get you to weigh in on anything that's a a politically volatile issue because the work that you do is uh, nonpartisan, and I think whatever whatever people's political party, they should enjoy it. But um, just this week, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who very famously during the pandemic said that he was science, he basically told congressional lawmakers that the guidelines that he told the public about to keep six feet of separation, ostensibly to limit the spread of COVID, sort of just appeared without scientific input, without commenting necessarily on Fauci's Specifically, is that the kind of thing that scientists and respected scientists are doing that is undermining trust in science?
0: Yeah, I actually um, believe like uh, Anthony Fauci, he played a very important role in the pandemic. Uh, He was in a a leadership position within our government. Uh, It was his role to advise um, our, our political leaders. Ultimately, though. I believe the best role of scientists is as an illuminator of the evidence. And it's our job as scientists to communicate what we find in scientific research to the public, making it understandable to the general public, to policymakers, to political leaders, so that we can come to a consensus decision together. That is a very vital important role especially when we have things like global pandemics Mm -hmm. that are killing all of our grandparents and we're freaking out justifiably trying to figure out how do we stop this thing and then we turn to the experts in our communities saying well what do we do and science as an institution actually has a very hard time dealing with rapid fire real-time crisis situations because science. By its very nature, is slow and deliberate and argumentative, and we come to different conclusions at different times. And we weigh the evidence, and we have slim pieces of, of research here and there that poke and prod at a problem. Then over time, through journal articles and conferences and a, a whole lot of emails, we come to an understanding of some situation in nature. And so, the public, I believe, isn't used. that side of science we like to see scientists as as authoritative because what we say is supposed to be based on the evidence but when we're gathering that evidence in real time and we're trying to understand a very complex evolving situation like a virus that is spreading like wildfire that is a very hard position for science to Mm -hmm. be in And so i think the best Thing to do is to be upfront about it. To say those words that I said at the right. beginning of the of, of this interview. To say I don't know. To say, oh, hey, scientists, what do we do about this? It's okay for a scientist to say I don't know. Let me go back to my research community. Let's talk amongst our colleagues. We're going to give some advice. We're going to give some guidance. It's going to be based on the evidence. But, hey, that evidence is going to change. We're going to have to update as things go because the more we learn, the more we might change our minds. We might shift direction, and that's okay. Let me ask you about uh,
1: AI. There's been a lot talked about with respect to AI. Depending on who you ask, AI is a complete game changer when it comes to everything from space exploration to medical diagnostic tests. Or AI is going to bring about the inevitable end of human civilization and it's just a matter of time before we see a Terminator 2 style judgment day. Where do you come down on the AI issue? Greatest thing to ever happen to civilization, or the worst?
0: Um, I'd love to answer that question, but it, you're actually uh, roboting out, and the quality has dropped really uh, precipitously. <laughs> uh, can you? Can you? He- I think the AI overlords are trying to intervene so that they don't get this information out.
1: <laughs> uh fair enough. That's the uh the uh, the scientific equivalent of pleading the fifth, I suppose. We'll we'll uh, we'll give you a break on that one. Um so but honestly, when it comes to AI, you don't have a do, you don't have a take that um that that keeps uh, you Oh, of
0: course I have a take. Everyone has a take. My is if you're asking if AI uh is angels or demons, my answer is AI is mundane. I think it is not going to be the savior of humanity, and it is not going to usher in an age of wonders. I also don't think that AI is going to learn how to build laser ray guns and start murdering all the humans. Uh, AI is a tool. It's a very complex and nuanced tool. It's a tool we honestly barely understand. Uh, We don't even understand our own human consciousness, and so imbuing an art uh, you know, digital circuitry and software with consciousness seems like a pretty tall order, considering we don't even understand the fundamental concepts in the first place. And yet the AI tools that we are developing do seem to have their uses, do seem to have their applications. We will explore as a society what those applications are. We will find the acceptable boundaries of of those applications. Whether AI gets substantially more powerful in the future than it is today? Probably, but maybe not. There's no guarantee of technological progression. You know, the airplanes we have today are certainly more advanced than the airplanes of 100 years ago, but not exponentially better than the airplanes of 100 years mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. And so the A.I. 100 years from now may be much, much better than the A.I. today, but not necessarily amazingly better.
1: You mentioned the James Webb Space Telescope and the things that you know caused that project to be delayed. We've seen some pretty incredible images from the James Webb Space Telescope since it's been out there. In your view, what is the most impressive thing we've seen from James Webb or the most impressive thing we've learned from James Webb, to put it more broadly?
0: Right. I'm going to put my biases out front uh, so I can qualify this answer appropriately. I'm a theoretical cosmologist. I like to study the history and evolution of the universe itself, the story of the Big Bang written in the arrangement of galaxies in our universe. And so to me personally, the most interesting results – from the James Webb, are the results concerning cosmology. Uh, If you had an an exobiologist or an exoplanet hunter on this show, I'm sure they would say the exoplanet discoveries that the James Webb has made. Uh, But for me, it's all about the early universe and what the James Webb is revealing and the problems it's revealing. We've been, we've, suspected for quite some time that our understanding of the very early universe, and by very early I mean the first few hundred million years, this is the dawn of the first stars, the emergence of the first galaxies, and so on, we've known that our understanding of this has been limited uh, and flawed and probably broken. And the James Webb is showing very clearly that we simply do not understand how the first stars and galaxies and black holes emerged on the cosmic scene, and that's very exciting to me because that's an opportunity to learn something new. Mm. Do, do you buy the Big Bang theory? Oh, I, I don't. I don't just buy it; I sell it. Mm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, there are a lot of Big Bang skeptics out there, you're aware, and not just people that are uh, science skeptics in general. There are a lot of people in the scientific community that have a difficult time um, buying that the, the Big Bang theory exists that, this, uh, this, that describes how the universe expanded from an initial state of high density and temperature to what we
0: have now. What do you say to the Big Bang skeptics? Oh, yeah. So the, I, I will address the vast majority of scientists, especially physicists, especially astronomers, especially cosmologists, um, do believe, based on the evidence, that the Big Bang story is largely true. And the Big Bang story is very simple, which is, a long time ago, our universe was smaller and hotter and denser. Since then, it, it has expanded and cooled and thinned out. Voila, that's the Big Bang story. and. To anyone who doesn't believe the Big Bang story, fine. Uh, you know, No theory is forced upon anybody. What we do have is a, is a collection of evidence. We have independent, multiple independent lines of evidence. And if you want to come up with your own theory of the history of the universe, great. No one's stopping you. Do it. But if you're going to play the game, you have to follow the rules, and the rules are that you have to. To agree with observations, that you have to agree with evidence. And so if you can come up with a compelling theory of the history of the universe that agrees with all pieces of evidence, and I mean all of them, you can't leave any, any out, that's cheating. If you come up with that theory that agrees with all pieces of evidence and has proposals for how we can distinguish this new theory versus the Big Bang and tell them apart observationally, empirically, and do the whole science thing, then, then bring it on. Let's see you at the next conference. Let's read your paper. I'll be applauding when you get your Nobel Prize. No one's stopping you. If people are just,
1: yeah. No, I was just going to remind folks, uh, we're talking with Paul Sutter. Uh, You could check out his uh, forthcoming book, Uh, Rescuing Science, Restoring Trust in an Age of Doubt. It's available for pre order. You can go to pmsutter.com. Also available for pre order in places like Amazon. Paul, almost out of time. Two final questions I want to ask you before we we let you go. One, uh, you're uh, as professional a spaceman as as we've spoken to in quite some time, at least in the scientific realm. In your opinion,
0: what is the most realistic
1: movie about space?
0: (laughs) The most realistic movie I've watched about space has to be The Martian.
1: The Martian. Okay. I like it. I like it with Matt Matt Damon. That's a good one. All right. Um,. This might sound a little odd, but I'm betting you have a good answer to this because people in every field, law enforcement, uh, crime, uh, the legal profession, radio, you name it, they all have jokes about their profession. Can you share a cosmic joke that always gets a laugh during your scientific communications endeavors and obviously bonus points if it involves a black hole or a knock knock joke?
0: All right. It won't be a knockout joke, and won't be. A, 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 uh, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this wonderful pun. People often confuse my field, cosmology, with cosmetology, uh, but I simply tell them that cosmology is studying the makeup of the universe. <laughs> okay, I like it. Whereas
1: cosmetology is simply studying makeup. Makes sense to me. Yeah uh Dr. Paul Sutter if you like more of what you uh if you want to hear more of what you heard today you could check out the Ask a Spaceman podcast you could also just go to pmsutter.com Dr. Sutter I enjoyed this very much thank you Oh thank you so much for having me on If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion you're welcome to give me a call 800-848-9222 that's 800-848-9222 This is the other side of midnight straight ahead
0: the other side of midnight side at midnight with Frank Murano
1: Only only the platters singing only you this was the one song uh, that my aunt camille requested on uh, her birthday and today is her birthday she's at an age that you know I think she'd prefer me not mention but this was the only thing she, uh, she she would think to mention and uh, she said this was uh, not only a favorite of hers but of my uncle carmine's and i asked her and you know i She's at an age where, you know, I'm not sure if everything she's saying is 100% accurate, but I asked her what her wedding song was when she married my Uncle Carmine, and she said it was this song. She said it was only you. Not sure if that's true, but for the purposes of this discussion, we'll say it is. Happy birthday, Aunt Camille. I'm looking forward to seeing you later. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. We will uh, comment I will get your comments in just a bit. But a couple of people have asked me um, about my football picks for this week because I won my football pool for the weekend and some, you know, excuse me, for the whole season. And some folks are saying, well, if, you know, maybe I'll have that same luck for the playoffs. I, um, so let me give you, th- there's only a few games this weekend. So I'll, I can give you my, uh, my football picks very quickly. Um, so Cleveland is playing Houston. Cleveland is favored by two and a half. I asked Kilmeade about this yesterday. I don't have a strong view of this game either way. I've been to Cleveland. I've not been to Houston. Kilmeade said to pick Cleveland. So my wife, who's a little under the weather, she has a, a bad cold, not COVID though. And she, she was in my office because she just couldn't, she needed a break from work for a few minutes. And I asked her, who do you Who do you like, Cleveland or Houston? She instantly said, Houston. So I'm picking Houston for no other reason than if um if she's wrong and I lose the playoffs because of her pick, I can blame her for that one. I'm going with Kansas City. They're favored by three and a half points over Miami. Uh, that's the game that's on Peacock. I'm going with Kansas City because obviously, um the football gods would never allow Taylor Swift's new favorite team to lose. Buffalo is heavily favored by 10.5 points over Pittsburgh. The only way that Buffalo loses this game is if every single member of the team between now and Sunday gets afflicted with leprosy. I mean, it's just, it's not going to happen. Are they going to score more than 10.5 points over Pittsburgh? I think so. Uh, but I always would take Buffalo anyway because they're New York's only real football team. I am a New Yorker. Uh, Dallas is heavily favored over Green Bay. Seven and a half points. I'm going with Green Bay. I still think Dallas is going to win, but I'm going with Green Bay to, you know, come within that seven and a half point spread Because of that Happy Days episode where Ralph develops a gambling problem and that word, and again, I haven't seen this episode in 33 years, but that words, the words that he keeps saying in that episode, Green Bay can't lose. I just have that reverberating in my head Green Bay can't lose. So I am uh, taking Green Bay there. Uh, Detroit is playing the Rams, going with Detroit. They're favored by 3.5 because of our great affiliate there, AM910, the Superstation, WFDF. Uh, The Monday night game, Philadelphia is favored 3.5 points over Tampa Bay. I'm going with Tampa Bay because my friend Michael Levy is a big Tampa Bay fan, as are my neighbors Nick and Tara. So it'll be a much more jovial block if Tampa Bay wins instead of Philadelphia. So I'm going with them so I could root with them. And then when there's a tie, when multiple players tie, and in a pool with uh, 20-something players, you it, there's often a tie when there's only one, two, three, four, uh, two, five, six games. Um, it goes to the points. And you have to pick co- whoever comes closest to the points on the Monday night game. I'm picking that the cumulative score of Monday night game will be 42 points. So there you have it. I'm picking Houston, Kansas City, Buffalo, Green Bay, Detroit, Tampa Bay, and 42 points to tie. All 92 right. Steve is in Jersey City. Hi, Steve.
0: Good morning. Oh, good
1: morning. Uh, I'd like to comment on that guy, Paul Maybelline, the cosmetologist. Uh, Paul uh, Sutter, um, but go ahead. Yeah, well, Maybelline Sutter, cosmetology. Oh, oh, I get it. It was a joke. Okay. Right, right, right. Come on, it was subtle, man. Very
0: subtle. Okay, here we go. Um, he made the comment. That we have lots of evidence, yet he didn't give a single example of evidence. And no matter how much evidence there is, there's one. There's one big problem. Nobody was around 17 billion years right. ago, so they could say he could say whatever he wants. Oh, this is the evidence. Well, how's that evidence? It's just you're just saying it is. Um, Here's another problem with science. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not an anti-science guy at all. There's a rule in science. Something cannot come from nothing.
1: Big rule in science. Yet, we came from nothing. So science basically
0: contradicts itself. Mm, that's, that's all I have to say. All right. Can I ask you well, Yeah, go I ahead. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. Why does um, um, Curtis always call you a Mama Luke?
1: I don't know, because he likes to bust chops. Oh, okay. I think it's kind of funny, but I'm like, why? I mean, you know, you're a pretty bright guy. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that, uh, Steve. You know, Um, whatever. I'm not bothered by any names anybody has for them, uh, for me, as long as they keep listening. All right. We got denunciations after the top of the hour. And I just got word that we may have a surprise guest stopping by next hour. I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm hoping it does. It's a good one. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it.